Good evening, everybody. Good evening. If you would, open up your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read a couple of verses there on the top of the chapter here in just a moment, and that will help to frame up the thoughts of our study this evening. 2 Peter chapter 2. It is great to see everybody tonight, and it is great to get to be uh, with you uh, once again on this uh, first day of the week and to have the opportunity to uh, worship together and to study together, and I'm encouraged by your uh, by your presence and by your interest in uh, spiritual things. There's a lot to say tonight, and so I want to just get right to it. In Second Peter chapter 2, read with me, if you will, beginning in verse 1. Second Peter chapter 2 and in verse 1, the Apostle Peter writes this. Second Peter 2 verse 1, he says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. You know, I wish very much that first, or excuse me, Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 didn't say what it just said. Instead, I wish it said, folks... You really don't need to worry about false teachers. Everybody who comes to you in the name of Jesus Christ is guaranteed to be the real McCoy. And so whatever they say, you just believe it and you practice it and you'll be fine. I wish it said that, but it doesn't. I wish that 2 Peter chapter 2 said, oh yeah, there are some false teachers out there. There's no doubt about that, but but don't you worry about them. Because you know what? If you follow error... God won't hold you accountable for that. God won't hold you responsible. I wish it said that, but it doesn't say that. I wish 2 Peter chapter 2 said, yes, false teachers do exist, and yes, you will be held responsible if you listen to them and if you follow them and believe them, but don't worry, because you'll be able to easily identify them. They will have in big bold letters right across their forehead, I am a false teacher. I wish that's what the passage said, but that's not what it says. What Peter does say in this passage is that God's people need to be on guard. That we need to be testing and that we need to be discerning what we hear. That we need to be able to decipher truth from error. And what I'm asking you this evening is, is can you do that? Are you able to identify and spot real Christianity? Can you tell the difference between fake Christianity and real Christianity? When, for example, those two quote-unquote elders, those two young men come riding on their bicycle to your front doorstep, what do you say to those young Mormon elders? Whenever your co-worker maybe hands you a religious pamphlet and says, hey, look, all you have to do is just pray this little prayer and then you'll be saved. What do you say? What do you do? When maybe you are involved, young people, in conversations with your friends, and as they're talking to you about where it is that they go to church, and how at their church they've got a big multiplex gymnasium, and they have magic shows, and they have rock concerts there, and oh, it's just wonderful, and this is what church is all about, well, well, what do you say? How do you respond? You know, sometimes I'm afraid that our attitude about religious error and false teaching is, is just running high. We'd just rather not talk about that, deal with that, or confront that at all. Or maybe even worse is whenever we develop a rather casual and cavalier attitude toward error. 
where we're just not paying attention. We're not being careful. We're not being on guard. We're not listening to the admonition of 2 Peter 2 verses 1 and 2. And before you know it, we're accepting, we're believing, we are following error. We need to learn to stand on our own two feet. We need to develop the skills that will help us to be able to spot false teaching. We need to be able to spot and identify the real from the phony. And that's why this evening I do want to spend just a few minutes with you talking to you about how to detect, how to identify fake Christianity. Now, of course, one approach to this idea and how do we talk about various forms of fake Christianity would be for me to preach on every single religious error that is in existence. And so tonight I'm going to begin a series of 17,474 lessons where we will talk about every religious error and that series should last until slightly after the Lord returns. Uh, No, we're not doing that. That would be nearly impossible. In fact, even if by some miracle I was able to discuss and preach on every single religious error before the Lord returns, even by the time I got done with all of that, there'd be a whole crop of new religious errors because they're being invented and come up with all the time. So obviously that's not going to work. However, I am convinced that most false doctrine shares some basic kinds of characteristics and traits. And I believe that if you can recognize those traits and those characteristics, I think you will be ahead of the game like 99% of the time. And so this evening, that is exactly what I want to do. I want to give us some very clear guidelines and some criteria, some things that we want to be looking for by which we can judge a person's teaching. And that includes even my teaching. I am not exempt from this. Some things we want to be on guard for, alert for, so that we will be able to discern and spot the true from the fake. As we do that this evening, I need to set before you just a couple of foundational principles. Because really, everything that we're going to talk about this evening really will rest on these two foundational ideas. Everything is going to be built upon these two ideas. And the first of which is that it is absolutely essential that you and I know our Bibles and that we know them well. Let's go grab that verse in Acts the 17th chapter. Would you find Acts chapter 17? In Acts 17, we are told about Paul and Silas, and they're doing some preaching in the city of Berea. And we read in Acts 17 and in verse 11 concerning that work there and the people that were listening to them, Acts 17, 11, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Let me just illustrate this first point by talking for a moment about about something that is fake and phony. Let's talk for a second about counterfeit money. Let's take a trip down to our local bank. How do banks handle counterfeit money? Well, I know some people that work at a bank, and I've talked to them about this very thing. And while bank tellers do get some measure of training on some of the latest counterfeit techniques and what they need to be watching for. The truth is, most bank people are not trained and, you know, we got to get you really up to speed on the fake stuff. No, what bank tellers are trained, what they're trained to do is to deal with the real McCoy. That's what they're trained to do. 
primarily the first line of defense in detecting a counterfeit is that bank tellers, they know the genuine article so very well. Think about it. All day, every day, bank tellers, they are handling real money. Real money just has a certain a certain shape and feel to it. The printing that's done on your real United States money, it is done with a special printing press that causes the ink to just kind of rise up a little bit off of the paper. It just feels different. And the paper itself, it's a cotton paper blend. It's not just regular paper. It's a cotton paper blend. Again, it just feels Different, the color, everything about it has a peculiar and certain feel. And of course, when you count thousands upon thousands of dollars and you're touching and handling that day after day after day, all day long, you get to know what the genuine, real article really feels like. In fact, in fact, when you've got a line of people at the counter and they're waiting to you know, be waited on, you really don't have time to pull out a microscope and look at all of every single bill every single time. No. you got to be able to keep that moving, and you do that by being so familiar with the real thing, you're able to identify pretty quickly what the false is. And you know what? That is exactly the principle that I believe Scripture is developing for us. Are we like these Bereans in Acts 17 and in verse 11? How well do we know the real thing? How well do we know our Bibles? This is, of course, one of the reasons that we as a congregation here, and I personally am always trying to encourage daily Bible reading. Somebody maybe has already said this year, we're hearing the reading plan in the middle of the year, we're reading in 2 Samuel. Somebody's probably thought to themselves, why do I need to read this? I've already read Samuel before. I mean, come on, that's kind of like a teller saying, hey, I've already counted 20s before. I'm good to go. I don't need to read that again. I don't need to deal with that anymore. Well, the truth is, yes, you probably have read 2 Samuel before. You probably have read all of the Bible before. But we're going to continue to handle the Word of God over and over and over and over so that through that repetition, we develop a strong sense, a strong feel for the real Thing. Look in 2 Timothy with me, please. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes this in verse 15. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and in verse 15, Paul says there, 2 Timothy 2 verse 15, he says, Do your best, be diligent, some translations say, to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Do you see it there? By prolonged handling over and over our familiarity with the truth, it just starts to become ingrained into our system. So much so that when something comes along, something comes into our windshield view that is different, it looks, looks just doesn't really seem compatible with what we know Scripture teaches, it just raises a red flag. It just causes bells to start going off in our head. And the truth is, we may not be able to put our finger exactly on what's wrong about what we're seeing and what we're hearing, but we know. We know that something is afoul here. Something is fishy here. So we become alert. We put our defenses up. We then begin to identify what is false, what is wrong about what we're hearing. Why? Because we know our Bibles. Which brings me right to this second foundational idea. And that is that secondly, we need to take very seriously the Bible's warnings 
about false teaching. Look with me, if you will, in 2 John, in John's 2nd epistle. In 2 John, there's only one chapter, look in verse 8. In 2 John and in verse 8, John says this. He says, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Verse 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Verse 10 now, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. John says there's going to be error out there. And he says we need to be watching out for that. In fact, as I studied and prepared for this lesson, I came to realize just how much the Bible has to say about this problem. I mean from cover to cover. It's all over Scripture. The Bible discusses error and false teaching and false prophets repeatedly. Can we just grab a sampling of that? Go back. Let's go back toward the beginning. Look in Deuteronomy 18. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, as Moses is speaking to God's first covenant people, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, he talks to them about the problem of false prophets. Moses was keenly aware that there would be others who would try to come in behind him. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, he says in verse 18, Deuteronomy 18, 18, Moses writes there, or he says there, he says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Verse 20. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know that the word that the Lord, how may we know that this is a word that the Lord has not spoken, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Look a little further in your Old Testament. Jump ahead in their history in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 13, even here during the time of the captivity, it seems as if people were still struggling with error being taught. In Ezekiel chapter 13, I'm reading here in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and they say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, woe to those foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Drop down to verse 6. They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord, when the Lord has not sent them, yet they expect Him to fulfill their word. There's a problem all throughout Old Testament history. False teachers. And of course, that carries right over into the New Testament. Look in the time of Jesus in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 7, during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns about this. In Matthew chapter 7 and in verse 15, in Matthew chapter 7 and in verse 15, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes, or figs from thistles. Jesus understood about false teachers. And of course... He told His disciples, His apostles, about false teachers, and they in turn instruct us about them. Look in Galatians now. 
In Galatians chapter 1, I hope you are starting to see just how serious of a problem this is. How seriously the Lord takes this issue. In Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, the Apostle Paul writes, I am astonished, Galatians, that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. One final example. Look in 1 John chapter 4. In 1 John chapter 4, here is the Bible's constant admonition, again, from beginning to end, to be on guard for error. In 1 John 4 and in verse 1, John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Over and over again, the Bible says there's going to be error that is taught. Now, granted, some of that error might be unintentional. I will remind you that myself and others like me who stand up and attempt to proclaim the Word of God, we are not operating under the direct inspiration and direction of the Holy Spirit the way that the apostles were. I'm a frail and fragile and fallible human being, which means I may say something that's just wrong. I may think that I'm saying the right thing when in fact I'm saying the wrong thing, and I hope that you'll give me some grace in that. But in many cases, and in fact these passages that we've just read, these are people who are just outright deceiving people religiously. And the Bible's warning is, you need to be watching out for that. And yet the sad truth is, is that many Christians today really don't seem to be all that worried about it. Not all that concerned with being discerning the way that John talks about here. In fact, you may even right now, may not even be listening to what I'm even saying. I'll just take his word for it. I'm sure he's right. Listen to me. What happens if you take a counterfeit $100 bill? Do you know what happens? What happens if if you get fooled, you get tricked, you're making change somewhere, and you get a fake $100 bill, and then you go down to the bank and you're going to try to deposit that into your account, what do you think happens next? I'll tell you exactly what happens next. The bank confiscates that bill. Under law, they must do so and then turn it in to the Treasury Department. And then, they lower your deposit $100. The bank does not cover you. You lose because you got fooled. And you don't even get to keep the bill as kind of a neat souvenir. Wow, look, I've got a counterfeit bill. No, you don't get to do that. They take it. They take the bill. You lose the money. Answer me this. What happens if you believe error? I'll tell you what could happen. What could happen is you could lose your soul. That's pretty serious business, isn't it? I'm reminded of something I saw Sister Marcy post on Facebook the other day. And the gist of what she posted was, is that I am responsible for what I believe. And that's true for each one of us. My soul depends upon it. We need to take seriously the warnings about false teaching so that we are not tricked into believing a lie. Look in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here's a frightening passage in many ways. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 
Paul says this, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, look in verse 9. In 2 Thessalonians 2 and in verse 9, Paul says the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, verse 11, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Do you see it there? What I accept, what I believe becomes my responsibility. I will be accountable for that. Somebody maybe then says in light of all that, okay, Josh, that's heavy stuff. I don't, I don't want to get duped. I don't want to get tricked. I don't want to believe something that's fake and something that's false. What can I do? What should I be watching for? What are some helpful things that will help us to be able to spot fake Christianity? Well, I'm really glad that you would ask. Because what I want to share with you now for these last few minutes is I want to share with you four, what I believe are just very typical traits of fake and counterfeit Christianity. Four things in particular that you and I, we can be watching for in a tangible sort of way. And that begins with this first idea. Number one, whenever someone comes and offers to you the Bible, plus fill in the blank. And what I mean by that is when someone tells you, yeah, oh, the Bible, yeah, I believe in the Bible. The Bible is awesome. The Bible is great. But in order for you to really know the will of God, to understand what God wants, the only way for you to really get everything that you need and get to heaven is you need the Bible and something else. You need the Bible and something more. What's our response to that? I'll tell you what our response to that is every time in 2 Timothy chapter 3. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, here's our response. Somebody comes to you with the Bible plus something. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Paul writes there, All Scripture, it's breathed out by God. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Listen to me very carefully. If the Bible makes you complete, then why do you need anything else? In fact, it's probably a good question you want to ask the next time you're talking to somebody and they're talking to you about the Bible's good, but you also need this over here. You just want to ask them that. If the Bible makes us complete, as that verse says, I think about everybody can agree with that verse, then why do we need anything else? And the answer to that is, you don't need anything else. And so when someone comes and offers you the Bible plus this other thing, you need to go to DEFCON 5 immediately. Because you know just from that offer that something, something just isn't right about this. I know what 2 Timothy chapter 3 teaches. It says that when I have the Scripture, when I'm following the Scripture, doing what the Scripture says, I am complete. I am equipped for every good work. And so, for example, when someone comes along and they say, well, you know, the Bible's great, but you know, God, God told me something. I received a vision from the Lord. I have a direct leading from God. Then what we need to be ready to say is that there is no promise in Scripture, none whatsoever, where God says that He will give you or me or anyone else any kind of direct guidance whatsoever. That the Holy Spirit in some way, that He'll, he'll warm your heart. 
Or that He'll he'll nudge you in a certain direction. Or somehow, in some way, He'll whisper in your ear. In fact, if you'll just kind of watch very carefully in Scripture, while there are some instances of God speaking directly to people on earth, you should know that that actually, that actually is very rare. I think sometimes people just think God's just talking to people from heaven like all of the time, but actually that didn't happen all of the time. It was very rare. And so, what do we need today? We don't get the Lord speaking to us from heaven. What do we get? What do we rely upon? We rely on 2 Timothy chapter 3. The Scripture. Because it makes us complete. And if the Bible makes us complete, why would we need any other kind of additional leading? And maybe here's a really key question to ask. How would I even know that it is God that's actually doing that direct leading? How would I know that maybe that voice that I am hearing, that warm, fuzzy feeling that I have inside, how would I know for certain that that's actually from the Lord and not from the devil? You don't think the devil would know how to counterfeit that kind of feeling? Look with me in 2 Corinthians 11. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about the activity of the devil, what the devil is capable of. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says in verse 13, 2 Corinthians 11, 13, he says, For such men are false prophets, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. How would I know that that's the direct operation of the Lord on my heart and that that's not the work of Satan? Or what about this? What about when someone says, okay, yeah, the Bible, the Bible's Great book. Bible's awesome. Bible's wonderful. But you know what? You really can't understand the Bible all by yourself. What you need is you need the church's official interpretation of the Bible to help you get along and do the things that you need to do. And this is, of course, the position of Roman Catholicism. The Roman Catholic Church is going to tell you what to believe because, well, you're just not able to figure it out for yourself. You're just... Well, you're just meager little lay people. You're not part of the clergy up here. Would you look at what Paul says about that? In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul just directly confronts this thinking that somehow you need some church or some other kind of organization to be able to help you to understand God's Word. In Ephesians chapter 3 and in verse 3, Paul says, talking here about how that mystery, it was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. And when you read this, You, just regular people, regular Christians, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Paul says, do you want to understand the Bible? You can. That's the good news. You don't need some church's official interpretation. In fact, the reason that people tell you, oh, you need the church's official interpretation on things is because because you would never arrive at the conclusions that they come to without hearing their interpretations of it. If you just read the Bible for yourself, you would never come to those outrageous and ridiculous conclusions. And you know what? This is especially true whenever somebody comes to you and they say, yeah, the Bible, Bible's good, Bible's great, but you know what? You also need you also need some latter-day revelations. You know, Bible's wonderful, but let's be honest, the Bible, Bible is old. I mean, there's parts in it that are really, really old. And you know what? Because it's so old, it's become corrupted over time. It's become corrupted. And so what we need is we need some new revelation. And if this sounds familiar, this, of course, is the position 
of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, otherwise known as the Mormons. They will try and attempt to undermine your faith in the Bible as the complete and inerrant Word of God just as fast as they can because what they want to put into your hands and what they want to put into your mind is the Book of Mormon. But just ask yourself this. If the Bible became corrupted, if God, for whatever reason, allowed that to happen to His Word, then how do we know that that didn't also happen to the Book of Mormon? You know, the Book of Mormon, it's kind of getting old. Maybe it's time that we need a fresh new revelation and some fresh new book to update it. Of course, this whole idea that God would ever allow His Word to become corrupted is just absolutely ludicrous. Look with me in 1 Peter in 1 Peter, at the end of chapter 1, Peter says this, 1 Peter chapter 1 and in verse 24, he says, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. The Bible is not corrupted. The world is not in need of some new revelation because the word of the Lord remains forever. Finally, in this connection, somebody comes to you and they say, well, you know what, the Bible's good and the Bible's fine, but you also probably ought to take a gander at this creed book as well. Because this creed book that I'm going to show you, it helps to kind of formulate the key doctrines of Scripture that you really need to know. You know, the Bible's a really big book. There's a bunch of stuff in there. You really don't need like all of it. So our creed book kind of just pulls out all the main ideas and we well, can just read this and that'll, that'll get you where you need to go. Here's my question about creed books, and I've got some creed books down on the shelf down in my office. Who gets to decide what's in the creed book or what's not in the creed book? I know that I was never consulted about any of those creeds of men. Nobody asked me my decision on what ought to go in there and what shouldn't. But the fact of the matter is, if the creed book contains less than what the Bible has, then it contains too little. If the creed book contains more than what the Bible has, well, it contains too much. And if the creed book contains exactly what the Bible says, then why do we need it? We've got the Bible already. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says that the Bible and the Bible alone will make us complete and equipped for every good work. And so when somebody starts on this line of the Bible plus something else, they in fact have done you a huge favor. They have done this because they've just might as well have just announced, hey, I'm coming to you with something that is fake. I'm coming to you with something that is false and is incomplete. They might as well just tell you I'm a false teacher because I'm trying to undermine your belief in the all-sufficiency of the Scriptures. Secondly, let me tell you what else you need to be watching for. We always want to be on guard for folks who want to try to teach us something but then they want to discourage asking questions. You know, don't, 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 don't ask any questions about this. Don't think for yourself, hey, you're thinking about it too much. Just listen to what I'm telling you. Just receive what I'm telling you and just leave it at that. Accept it for what it is. You just listen, just kind of just tilt your head back and let me just pour this down your, down your guzzle there and then you just take it all in. Can I borrow that passage we looked at a moment ago from Acts 17 again? Would you look at that again in Acts 17 and in verse 11? I want you to think about what exactly is going on here. In Acts 17 and in verse 11, we're told once again that these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily 
to see if these things were so. Here's my question. Who's doing the preaching there? Who's doing the teaching there? It's Paul, an apostle of the Lord. These people are checking an inspired apostle of Jesus. Now, if an inspired apostle is getting checked, well, who doesn't get checked? And that is exactly what I believe the kind of people that the Lord is looking for. He's looking for people who will engage with His Word. People who will check everything that's being said by that Word. And when something's not right, they're going to raise their hand. They're going to speak up. They're going to say, hey, I've got a question about what you said there. Because that's not what my Bible says. What you were teaching there didn't seem to fit and harmonize with what I was reading right before my eyes. What about this verse? What about this passage over here? What about that? We say very clearly as we talk about, we want to be ready to ask questions. We try to encourage others to ask questions. This does not mean to imply that we just want to be instantly disagreeable. That as soon as I hear something that maybe is different than what I'm normally used to hearing, that that means we just immediately need to get defensive. We need to try to engage in some kind of a fight and be just ornery and disagreeable. No. And certainly this does not mean that we want to try to be ugly and have a bad attitude. But it does mean when something doesn't sound right, we're going to ask a question about that. And of course, when you start asking questions to someone who is a false teacher... Lots of times, that's when the conversation comes to a grinding halt, doesn't it? This is particularly true. You've maybe had the experience before. This is particularly true when you're talking with Jehovah's Witnesses. Lots of you have had experiences with Jehovah's Witnesses before. They come to your doorstep, and they're just ready to pour out just a whole big bucket full of Jehovah's Witness doctrine right there on your doorstep. And it has been my experience, and I think it's been the experience of some of you, that Jehovah's Witnesses really don't like it. When you interrupt their spiel and you start asking questions and you get them sidetracked from the things that they had already planned and prepared to say, anything that disrupts the conversation, they just don't like that at all. And why? Well, because they're not there to have a conversation. They're not there to exchange ideas or to learn. No, they're there to teach you. They're there to control you, to dominate you, to tell you what it's all about. Paul says you need to be watchful for that. Look with me in Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul speaks of this very kind of thing. In Colossians chapter 2 and in verse 8, Paul says this, Colossians 2 verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul says you need to watch out for people who would try to take you captive by what they say. Because fake Christianity, well, it doesn't promote the idea of thinking and studying for yourself. No, you just listen to what we're telling you and don't you raise any objections. We want to be watchful for that. That's a red flag for us. And I think you'll notice that as well whenever you run into folks who are what I would call one-verse wonders. Because fake Christianity oftentimes will sometimes cause the things that they say and the things that they believe to hang on a single verse. That this is it. This one passage. It's kind of the silver bullet passage in the Bible. This is the only verse that matters. Everything else in the whole rest of the Bible really doesn't matter because this one verse exists. Don't need to be worried about anything. Don't need to read anything else because this one verse just sets everything straight. 
I'll give you what I think is the classic example of that. This is probably the thing that maybe we encounter most often in our dealings with our friends and with our neighbors. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, this is one of the most beloved. It is one of the most wonderful verses in the Bible. Unfortunately, it's often one of the most abused verses in all of the Bible. In Ephesians chapter 2, as Paul is developing the idea here of what we once were in sin and how God has orchestrated this great plan to save us from sin, in the middle of that discussion we're told in Ephesians chapter 2 and in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Well, there you go. There you go. Faith only salvation. Right there in black and white, Ephesians 2 verse 8, that settles it once and for all. All you have to have is faith and you will be saved. And that happens, doesn't it? You've been in conversations with folks. They bring up Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. And I mean, come on. I mean, it's right there, black and white. How can you deny that? That verse says it all. And you know what? If that was the only verse in all of the Bible that talked about salvation, well, yeah. That would really change our approach and what we think about being saved and how a person is saved, wouldn't it? But the truth is, Ephesians 2 verse 8 is not the only verse on the subject of salvation. What about Mark 16, 16? What about Acts 2, 38? What about Romans 10, 9 and 10? What about James 2 verse 24? The one verse in the Bible where you can actually find the words faith and alone where it says you can't be saved by faith alone. We need to take all of God's Word, don't we? Not just one passage. In the 119th Psalm, in Psalm 119 and verse 160, the psalmist said there, the sum of your Word is truth. Sum, S-U-M. The sum of your Word is truth. It's the sum of God's Word that comprises the truth. And fake and phony and counterfeit Christianity, I believe it will fall apart whenever all of God's Word is taken in aggregate, all and fully in consideration Instead of just one isolated passage. And can I just say right here, just kind of as a side point, we want to be careful about that too. I'm afraid, I've thought about this. I've thought about conversations that I've had with folks in the past. And we get talking about, for example, the subject of salvation and how quick I am to jump to Acts 2.38. And Acts 2.38 is a great verse. And it does talk about some things that are necessary when we're talking about salvation. But you know what? Acts 2.38 ain't the only verse in the Bible about salvation. So we want to be careful about that too. We want to take all of the Scriptures. Which brings it into this final idea this evening. I want to urge you and I want to urge me to be especially careful and watchful on anyone who would rely heavily on difficult passages in order to prop up their doctrines and their beliefs and their ideas. Where do many false teachers want to start? Lots of times, and I listen to, I'll get on YouTube every now and then, just kind of start scrolling through all of the big name preachers out there that have all these big grandiose ideas. And Where do they many times want to start? They want to start in those difficult visions in the book of Daniel. Or they want to parachute in right down into the middle of the book of Revelation. And I think they know that most people don't understand those books. They know that most people are intimidated by those books of the Bible. I'm kind of intimidated by those books of the Bible. And not only that, not only are we intimidated by those books, but we're also kind of curious about them. We're kind of interested in those books because of the apocalyptic language that's found in them. 
And so, what I think a lot of false teachers do, they realize that if they can just spin their tales and spin their doctrines out of those difficult books of the Bible, they can gain a hearing, they can gain your attention, and they can make some headway. Well, hold up just a second. Let's just put it in reverse a little bit. Why would we ever want to start with anything? Why would we want to start with the most difficult passages in the Bible and then in some way try to reinterpret everything else in the Bible based upon those hard and difficult and complicated passages to understand? Think about it. We we don't do that in other areas of life. We don't do that in school. You know, here's a kid who doesn't even know their multiplication tables. Oh, i got an idea. Let's start you in AP Calculus. We don't do that. This little kid doesn't even know their ABCs. Hey, here you go. Here's a copy of War and Peace. We don't do that, do we? No, we don't start that way. We start instead with the simple. We start with the easy. And then as we gain understanding of the simple, we then build on our understanding. And we proceed to those things that are a little weightier, a little meatier, those things that are more difficult. I'll give you a good illustration of how this happens oftentimes in our world today. Look in Mark chapter 9. In Mark chapter 9, and we talked about this a few weeks ago when we were in our Mark class, but I'm going to use it as an illustration once again. In Mark chapter 9 and in verse 1, this is the words of Jesus here. Mark 9 verse 1, Jesus said to the disciples who were living in the first century, He said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. There are all kinds of ideas that are floated around today about the kingdom of God. And what many of those ideas say is that the kingdom has not yet come. But one day in the future, it will come. Jesus will return. He will establish His kingdom here on earth. He will establish that on the throne of David in Israel where He will then reign for 1,000 years on this earth. That's part of the elaborate doctrine of premillennialism. And that, of course, has been stitched and pieced together through the use of all kinds of complicated passages in Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation. Well, I'm going to tell you this. I may not ever understand everything about Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation, but I can understand Mark 9 verse 1. Can't you? I think most of us, we probably got that on the first pass. That there were some people who were standing there in the days of Jesus who would be living when the kingdom of God came with power. Now, either that kingdom, either it came during their lifetime, as Jesus said, or Jesus was a liar. And I'm not convinced that Jesus was a liar. really doesn't make any difference what people might say out of those hard passages, Daniel, Revelation, or what they may say out of their creed book, or their counsel, or this is what my pastor or my clergyman told me. None of that matters. Mark 9 verse 1, it's plain. It's clear. I think even kids could get this. The kingdom was going to come in those people's lifetime. And that's just one example. When someone ignores plain, obvious passages of Scripture, like like Mark 9 verse 1, so that they can go run over to these difficult parts of the Bible and then build these giant, monstrous houses of theology full of apocalyptic statements and exciting visions, you need to know, again, red flag, you need to know, this might be error. It's violating the plain and the clear so that it can propagate the difficult. That is the kind of tactic that false, fake, phony Christianity will use. And my hope is this evening is that these four ideas, there are others we can talk about, but I think these four ideas give us a good start. 
And particularly those two foundational principles at the beginning, knowing your Bible, taking seriously the warning about false teaching, I hope that that will help all of us in our quest to separate the real from the fake. Back in November of 1978, the little country of Guyana, South Africa, made national world news when it was reported and it was told that 918 people had died of an apparent mass suicide. These people were the people who comprised a religious group known as the People's Temple. And under the influence and under the direction of their charismatic and in some ways kind of entertaining preacher and teacher Jim Jones, he made them lots of promises and he convinced and compelled them on that fateful day to drink Kool-Aid that was laced with cyanide. And in that day, 918 men, women... And even children lost their lives. Now, what happened there on that day, it was terrible. It was tragic. In fact, in many ways, it's, it's that passage that we started with in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, being carried out in those literal sense. People literally died because they listened to a false teacher. But you know what? The biggest tragedy on that day was not that 918 people committed mass suicide. The biggest tragedy that day was that 917 people trusted their souls to one false teacher and they ended up meeting the Lord in an unprepared condition. And the truth of the matter is, that tragedy, it's repeated all of the time. You don't have to join a cult You don't have to travel down to the deep jungles of southern Africa to lose your soul to false doctrine. No. You can do that right here. You can do that right now where you are. Just stop being careful. Stop being discerning. Stop being familiar with your Bible. Stop being on guard for false teaching and religious error. And you too, you too can be on the road that leads to certain destruction. And it'll be fake Christianity that got you there. That seems like a good place to go to God in prayer. Would you bow your heads? Would you pray with me, please? Our dear gracious God and our Father in heaven, Father, we come before you this evening so thankful to you for your word and for what it does for us, how it does indeed make us complete for every good work. Help us, Father, to never, ever take that for granted. We're thankful as well, Father, for the many warnings that you have sounded forth throughout the pages of your book to let us know that not everything that we hear that's that's laced with a thus saith the Lord actually comes from your lips. Help us, Father, that we would be more diligent, that we would be more careful, that we would be more watchful, that we would be on guard for false teaching. Father, we realize that the devil is hard at work in our world and he's led many people astray. And we're concerned about that, Father. We're concerned about our loved ones and our friends who've been duped into believing things that are lies. We're asking that you would be patient with them and that you would use us as tools that we might be able to expose them and lead them to the truth. Father, we're asking a special blessing for us this evening that you would help us, that you would protect us, that you would guard us from the evil one and that we would not believe a lie. Father, our desire is not only to know the truth and to love the truth, 
But we want to practice the truth so that one day we can be with you and we can be with your Son for all of eternity. We thank you so much for Jesus, the living embodiment of the truth, for the words that He spoke and for the life that He lived and the sacrifice that He made on Calvary that makes our salvation possible. And it is in His holy and precious name that we offer this prayer. And Amen.